lovers. Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to the fifth episode of Raw Truth on Get Real. Remember, RAW is an acronym for Reproducibility and Animal Welfare. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and today we're going to dig deeper into why it is that studies with rodents don't translate as well as they could to bring us the medical treatments we and our loved ones are hoping for. Over 95% of the animals we rely on for medical advances are rodents, and most of them live and are studied in stressful environments that compromise our ability to learn from them. But can we do better? Our guest today is Dr. Harry Knott, once a researcher and IACUC member himself, who is currently the CEO of TSE Systems. He is completely convinced that we can do better, and he'll share some innovative solutions for how today on Get Real. Thank you for joining us today on Get Real, Dr. Knott. I'm really excited about today's episode because it is a natural extension of what we started discussing on our last episode, which had to do with the fact that greater than 95% of the animals in research that we use to model human disease and treatments are mice. And one of the things we focused a lot on last time is that their housing conditions create a lot of inherent stress for them. And this stress has the ability to pretty much ruin the study, or at least create confounds in the study, enough so that we can't really be sure whether or not the data that we get from these animals are meaningful, right? And in that particular episode, we talked almost entirely about temperature, and that was enough, right? (laughs) Because so many diseases um, are affected by stress, and these animals are stressed right from the beginning, and so it, it puts a lot of models into question. But one of the things that our guest mentioned in that episode was that there were many other factors related to how mice are housed in research all over the world that also create stress in these animals, which further complicates matters and calls into question in an even greater way, whether or not the data we're getting from these animals is meaningful and whether or not that translates to the human condition, right? And of course, we've been talking for over a year now about how poorly many of these rodent models translate to human treatments and cures. And so we're trying to get at why that is and tighten that up some, right? So in keeping with that, I had read a paper by Jessica Kate and team, and it's out of Georgia Mason's lab, a very strong lab when it comes to looking at animal welfare science. And they had done a meta analysis where they went through thousands and thousands of papers and using some very clean and selective criteria related to how rodents were housed, pulled out hundreds of them. And they compared the condition of what they called conventional housing versus enriched housing. And in conventional housing, basically all the mice have is they live in a very small box, sometimes with others, sometimes by themselves. They have food, water, and this horrible substrate called corn cob, which we've discussed in a previous episode on Get Real. And this is how most of our rodents are housed relative to what we will call an enriched housing situation, right? Which models more what the animals are experiencing in nature, right? So in nature, they build elaborate nests, they dig, they burrow, they explore large areas. So there's a demand for exercise. And so in studies where they were enriched housing that gave them opportunities to nest and to burrow and to exercise, they found very different results when it came to certain stress-related diseases. And the diseases they looked at were cancer, 
cardiovascular disease, something I know you have a lot of expertise in, stroke, anxiety, and depression. And the bottom line is that what they determined was that conventional housing significantly worsened their conditions in these diseases. And so the question is, what's really causing the problem? Is it the stress from the housing or is it the manipulation related to the disease? And what are we really learning from these animals? So this is very troubling. You know, even just from an animal welfare standpoint, we have these mice living in these very unnatural settings. And then we're trying to get meaningful data out of them and apply it to people who don't live for the most part in these very stressful, unnatural settings. And, you know, I don't know how we compare apples to apples when we we have such a disparity from the beginning. Now, you have have a tremendous background in science. You were an IACUC member on top of that, so you have some oversight experience, but you are trained in pharmacology and physiology. You have expertise in cardiovascular and cerebrovascular diseases, and you also uh, function as a scientific and pharmaceutical consultant, so you have a huge amount of experience, particularly with rodent models. You are currently also the CEO of TSE Systems, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. But before we get into that, I'd love to know, you know, what are your thoughts about the way that we house these mice all over the world and the impact that has on science and our patients. Cindy, thank you, first of all, very much for this conversation and the ability to talk about this very important topic. They're typically housed in groups, four or five in a cage, but we basically take them out of that home cage environment and then expect them to do these experiments. But you have to be a little bit more realistic. It's not only temperature. It's, is there anything to do? Is there an exercise capability? Can they frolic around and play with each other? That creates a comfortable environment. And especially the diseases that you mentioned, neurologic diseases, dementia, depression, all those things. If you want to study those, you better make the environment right so that you have an optimal situation to study these things. The environment is simply extremely important for the well-being and because of that also for the data that you derive and the science that you do with these animals. Well, I think that's a really important point because I think that researchers have sort of missed this. They thought, well, they're mice. You know, what do they really need? The scientists are thinking more about their study itself, right? What experimental manipulations am I doing so that I can determine X, Y, or Z? And they're forgetting entirely about the animal's natural needs and thinking about how the animal lives. And we heard this from our previous guest, you know, that she'd had these conversations with researchers, people with their own labs. And when she broke down what she'd learned about the impact of temperature, they just couldn't believe it because it just never crossed their mind. So tell us, based on your extensive experience, what mice actually do need in their housing environment to be stronger models for science so that we have better translation to the human condition. Well, first of all, they should not be alone. And they also should not be alone during the experiment, if possible. Meaning they should be with other mice? Absolutely. So in, in one of the products that we have, the IntelliCage, we actually mix wild-type and transgenic. We mix treated animals with untreated animals. I think it's crucial. It reduces variability, and with that, it basically increases reproducibility. And that's exactly what we want, because ultimately that means we get significance faster from the experiment, which means less animals are needed. Right. So they're social creatures, and they should be socially housed. That's one thing. What else do they need to be better models for translation to human conditions? I think exercise. Exercise is an important one. Um, the temperature that was already brought up in the last podcast, fascinating studies, but also the interaction with humans. We are not their natural friends. So you want to leave them alone as much as you can. So use computers, use cameras, use other ways to observe the animals without going in there all the time and disturbing them. So less isolation time, allow for more natural behavior, and also think about lighting conditions 
just make them comfortable. When you think about this day and night, you probably dream about this. This is You have a very unique passion about this, and I find that very interesting. And I'd like to ask you, you know, why? Why is it so important for you to address these challenges in terms of how our mice need to be better models? Why is that so important to you? Well, society has given us this right to use animals as models for human disease, to alleviate human suffering and reduce death. And that's an awesome responsibility. They're living creatures. So it is our responsibility, and that's also what I felt as an ICOC member, like I'm their advocate. I have to judge on this protocol, you know, what is the impact on the animal? Is this worthwhile to do this experiment? And how many animals are we going to use? So over the years, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, I felt like, okay, we have to maximize our effort to increase animal welfare, not only for the sake of the animal, but also for the sake of the bigger picture. Better science basically gives you better data, use less animals. And at the same time, the quality of that data is simply better. This is not a conflict. This is not a paradox. Better life, better data. I'm absolutely, totally convinced of this. Yeah. And this is one of your uh, taglines, better lives, better science. It's that simple. How do you feel about knowing that many, 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 probably the majority of the studies that are happening right now in mice are still happening in these conventional housing conditions? a gigantic missed opportunity because I think we will get better results faster if we leave that paradigm alone and basically hop over to the new world. With these super enriched environments, we simply get better and more meaningful data. And it's kind of the conservatism in research. And there's a reason for that. I understand that. But I hate things like, let's do it the way we've always done it. No, let's not do it the way we've always done it, especially in neuroscience, especially in behavioral research. We know that a lot of the experiments are not reproducible. We don't like to talk about this, but it is true. There's publications on this, and Pharma made calculations about this, and one of them said, oh, we put a price tag on it. Our estimate is we're wasting $20 billion a year on useless experiments. That's half the NIH budget, by the way. And this is just in Pharma. Why did he even tell you this? I don't know. I found it very unusual for a drug company person to say something like this. But I think it's also like the thing that I have, there's this restlessness inside you like, okay, we can do this better. There's something not right here. We're not in the optimal situation. We're wasting an enormous amount of money here. And whether it's company money or taxpayer money, it doesn't matter. It's just a total waste of money. But it's the system that's driving us to have to do it this way. Because we need to do this test A, we need to do test B to test C before we can register or file for a, a patent or registering a new um, chemical entity, or a new potential drug. It only works if we work together and basically clean up this process and make it much more efficient. This only works if you're innovative and if you're on the front end. And that's where, where I want to be. That's where the company, TSC Systems, wants to be. We want to be seen as the leaders of innovation. You know, TSC, the, the abbreviation, stood for technical and scientific equipment. And I changed it to together with science and engineering. But the word together means two things. It's not only together in the sense of us and the company. It's together meaning us as the developers of equipment. It's the scientists that work with equipment. And it's the animals that have to live in the equipment. That's what I mean with together. Together through science and engineering. I think we need a lot more fusion, a lot more fusion. And I know you're passionate about this, much more fusion between the groups that are part of this, uh, regulatory agencies, 
the technology companies, the scientists, the funding agencies. And you've laid out a little bit of an outline focusing on animal welfare in the last episode. And animal welfare is a very important component of this. If we work together and society is putting a lot of money into this, let's not forget this is taxpayer money. It better be well spent. I certainly hope that in the next five years, this becomes more of the norm, right? At some point, we have to continue to hold people accountable for wasting taxpayer money and wasting animals. What are they really getting out of that except another paper that sends people on the wrong path? So for our audience, let's break things down a little bit. Animals don't typically live in labs. They live in these specially designed facilities called vivaria. And that's where their home cages are. And that's where these conventionally housed animals are that we discussed. And then when a researcher is going to do whatever their study is, especially if it's a behavioral study like you just mentioned, they'll take the animals out and go to some sort of a core where they can test them on these various things. But they're handling them the whole time and they're doing their best to not stress them out. But just removing them from their cage mates is stressful. Putting them on a cart through the hallway is stressful. And God forbid there are any of these emotion sensors that emit huge amounts of ultrasonic noise. Well, then there's more stress, right, that we don't know about, but they hear. And then they go to this completely new place, you know, maybe they have to go swim in a maze. Well, that's stressful. So there's just stress everywhere in that testing situation. So it sounds like to me what you've created are new options for the mice to be in during their actual research investigation, not when they're sleeping in their home cage, uh, or maybe in some cases their new test environment will also become their home cage, and that is very innovative. Um, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So let's start with the Stellar Implantable Telemetry System and maybe describe what that is and why it's valuable. Tell us how people measure what it is these things measure currently and then compare that to what your new product offers by way of improving that for animal welfare and for translatable science. The old way of doing things is basically you would take a very small box and you would put the animal in there and there would be like a plate under it with an antenna. So remember telemetry is there's key signals in the body that we'd like to record. Things that we mentioned before like blood pressure, your EKG, you know, your heart activity, your brain activity, your temperature key physiological parameters that are indicative of a lot of processes in the body. You can measure these with sensors that you can implant in the body and they can transmit wirelessly outside so that the animal is not hooked up to something. So they freely transmit this and then the animal can go back to its normal behavior, but still in a box of maybe, you know, a foot by a foot or 20 by 30 centimeters, totally alone, typically. So what we did is we bought freedom back. So first of all, the range. You can basically walk 15 feet and we can still record your data. You can go from one box to another. You can also leave the box. You can leave the room. You're still going to get your data. So it gives freedom back to the animal to move around, but also to be around others. Classic telemetry was one animal because of the interference. We're now living in a digital age. If we are in a room with 50 humans, we have 50 cell phones. There's no interference between those cell phones. So why should we have a telemetry system that has that? So it's an all-digital solution where you can group house animals. They all have their own digital ID, their own phone number, basically, and they all transmit their data, and they don't interfere with each other. So now we also get all these signals while they are in group housing. And they don't feel this. I mean, as far as they know, they're just living their little mouse lives with all their little mouse friends doing their mouse things. Very, very natural. I mean, as close to natural, it sounds, as one could be in an artificial setting, like in a lab setting, much better than what they are accustomed to being tested uh, alone. Now, let me ask you a question. You certainly have folks using this system that had done things the old way previously. 
What kind of feedback are you getting from them about the difference in their results? Are we seeing more meaningful data coming from animals using this new setup that you've created for mice? Oh, definitely. One of the most important examples is blood pressure. If you look at blood pressure in an individual animal, it's always elevated compared to when it is co-housed with other animals. And from blood pressure data, we know, for example, that two is still not a group. Three, that's kind of the absolute minimum size of a group of rodents. And then you see the average blood pressure of all the animals coming down. They're more relaxed. They're more natural. And if you want to test drugs, for example, in such an environment, resting heart rate is a very important factor when you look at drugs. So in certain projects, like a project we have now running in Europe called Inspire, we're actually looking exactly at this. If we allow group housing and we have this general, basically better, you know, more healthy, normal cardiovascular background, maybe the outcome of our experiments in terms of testing new drugs is better and more meaningful. And that's also why organizations like the FDA are very interested in this, because this is one-to-one translatable to humans. Right. So maybe skip the larger animal, because this data is so strong in and of itself. Go straight from mouse to human. Is that what you're suggesting that the FDA might be suggesting? Absolutely. I want to do a shout out to the FDA that they are interested in this kind of basic science approach. This is really way, way, way basic science. We're not close to putting a drug into a human yet, and they're already interested in the basic research that will lead to new drugs in humans. So the fact that the FDA is interested in this is, I think, first of all, testimony to their quality in looking at this process and also puts binoculars on us to do our best to make sure that we generate meaningful data and better drugs. And faster. This 95% that we keep talking about, this gap, right, will get smaller and smaller. This is interesting because we keep talking about this. You know, certainly groups that are opposed to animals and research who don't, I don't think, understand the requirement for having animals so that we can understand the basic biology, which is what you were just talking about. We can't create an alternative to behave like something we don't understand, right? We're still trying to learn about it, right? But what these groups are saying is that the reason for this 95% gap, this disparity, is just because animals aren't meaningful uh, when it comes to the human condition. And of course, we know that's not true because the 5% that have worked have saved billions and billions of lives over the years. And we, we are all benefiting from medical conveniences right now. The issue is are we doing this work well? How many animals are we wasting? How much time are we wasting? How much longer is it taking for us to develop drugs that actually work and do what they're intended to do? Because the science itself is sort of sloppy, not deliberately, but there are all these variables that we haven't accounted for. And what your system's doing, the one you just described, just this one, and we're going to talk about others, right? But just this one, what you did is you said, this is not rocket science. Let's let the animals live in their sort of natural context for all of us, when we're living within our natural context, that is when we are the least stressed, right? And we know that stress has a tremendous impact on the immune system, which means it impacts every disease we're studying, not just the ones we just talked about, all of them, right? So if we can give animals an opportunity to live in as natural a context as is possible, I mean, it's not hard to understand why we're probably going to get tighter, less noisy data that's going to require, just like you said, fewer animals to get something meaningful from. We won't waste as many. So for animal lovers like me and you, that means a lot. I don't want animals to go through any of this for no good reason. 
thinking about this and saying, okay, well, obviously, if we put them in a natural context, then we'll get better data. That's great. But you've got to come up with ways to actually do that that will work within the operational confines and constraints of research settings, right? And you've got a few really good ideas. This one that you just talked about with the telemetry system is amazing because it allows animals to actually be mixed amongst groups. Now, you have uh, something else called the IntelliCage. And maybe you can uh, talk about that a little bit. And you know, what were you trying to address and restore for our mice to give us better data? Well, the IntelliCage actually comes from Hans-Peter Lipp, professor of neuroscience at the University of Zurich. He worked with monkeys as well as with rodent models. So very early on, he actually founded a company called New Behavior. And the name says it all, New Behavior, because he saw the classic tests and the lack of reproducibility. He said, let's standardize here. Let's standardize, but also go to a group because ultimately I'm interested in behavior and behavior is measured in a social group if you're a social animal. So he came up with the concept of a cage, much larger environment, eight to 16 animals at the same time, living together, playing together, eating together, drinking together. And you can play with the animals in terms of where they get their reward and work with visual cues, light cues, and then you can test things like memory function, things like autism. How do I interact within the group? All of this is possible. A lot of paradigms in an IntelliCage, and you're doing it at the same time in 8 to 16 animals. So when we talk about length of experiments, if you did this sequentially one by one, aside from the fact whether you would get any meaningful data from 16 animals in a row, you now get them basically within a week from 16 individuals at the same time. Plus, if you do the same experiment a couple of weeks later, the likelihood that you're going to get the same data is very high. If you take that data to a collaborator in a different country that has the same system, they will get the same data. So there we go. Reproducibility. Amazing. Now, my favorite, favorite thing that you have developed is PhenoWorld. Please tell us about PhenoWorld and the kinds of information we can get from PhenoWorld that we really can't get from anything else that I know of. PhenoWorld is really a concept that has now been replicated in, I would say, about 10 to 12 labs around the world. So think about these cages that we talked about. Now, let's connect these cages. Let's have this living room cage and connect it to a peripheral cage, one cage being, for example, the kitchen. This is where you can drink and you can eat. You go through another tunnel, you end up in the fitness room. There's a running wheel, there's a treadmill. You go back and maybe there's another cage where you can interact and scan the bedroom. So it's a large interconnected system where groups of animals can live together. They can go for a meal, go for a run. And while they're doing this, we again have all these non-invasive sensor technology that observe what they're doing, where they're doing it, how they're doing it. And again, you can mix treated and untreated animals. They can all be implanted with stellar transmitters. We have these operant corners, the corners that we have in our IntelliCage. So now you basically have this group where you can observe very detailed behavioral information using non-invasive technologies. And this is as close to nature as you can get without going into nature. So what kind of feedback are you getting from researchers about the data they're getting from these animals? Are they seeing things they just never were able to pick up before? I mean, what impact is this having? So the first one's like, oh my God, the complexity. And let's go back. The reason that we started basically taking animals out of the group and putting them in a box because it was too complicated for us to interpret what they were doing. That has totally changed. The same technology that allows us to miniaturize things, this is happening in computer science as well. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are two of the buzzwords. What they allow us to do is things that we cannot comprehend as humans by looking at a data set. These computers can interpret very large, very complex data 
datasets. So complexity is not a challenge anymore. So now we're taking complete different technology and applying it to animal science. And the researchers, they're thrilled with this because they also want to be on the forefront of where they are. So these are the pioneers in their field in behavioral neuroscience that are adapting to this technology and saying, listen, okay, away with the old stuff. This is the future. We now have the ability through computer science to interpret very large complex data sets. So let's now apply that to pheno worlds and see whether we can get better data out of our animal models. What kinds of things are these folks that are using pheno worlds studying? What are they learning about? In many cases, these are really complex diseases, and these are usually kind of the final frontier diseases. Very complex things like dementia and Alzheimer's disease, uh, the whole spectrum that we have in autism, and how this affects their own behavior and taking care of themselves, but also how it interacts with others around them. Yeah, I mean, there are social factors that are part of the experience in these diseases, right? So certainly in autism, in Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementia, you know, when animals are behaving strangely, the animals around them um, react differently, right? So when you get to the behavioral level and you're really trying to understand, you know, what is really happening with the brain and, and how does behavior with other organisms interact with this disease state? How can you do that without giving the animals this opportunity to be in a group setting? It's impossible. So you've got all of this computing, and I love this too, because groups opposed to research always say, well, you can just use computers. And it's just a reflection of them not understanding how much we still don't know about biology, right? You know, and I think to myself, all right, well, so in order for me to ask a computer to behave like an intact living system, I'd have to know everything there is to know about how an intact living system works, and I don't. So what you're asking me to do is to create something that behaves like something I don't fully understand so I can understand more about what I don't understand, right? So, And usually when I say that, they get it, right? But in this case, we are using computers. We're using computers to uh, gather information that we do have access to and synthesize it into much more meaningful pieces of information that weren't possible before, right? There is power in the computing and the technology, and we are applying it to science. Oh, absolutely. You know, science is a relatively small community, and we share a lot of information over the internet and through publications. So I think it is a very worldwide community and that crosses borders, cultures, everything. But it's the system that's still holding us back a little bit. So I think that once you publish, let's say, just like in medical science, once there is a therapy that is significantly better, you cannot use an old therapy anymore. You are basically obligated to do the best possible. That's still not in animal science. So if you do an IntelliCage experiment, and you have 16 animals and you can do a place preference measurement that replaces this Morris water maze where it basically swim or die, then why are people still doing this? Why is there nobody that says, listen, stop doing this? You can't do this anymore. There's a better, more meaningful technology, better for the animal, and you get better results faster. That's kind of amazes me that in medical science, you don't get away with old treatments. You have to take the best possible one. Why not in animal science? Well, particularly because the animal science is what's informing the development of the medical science to begin with, right? So what on earth, and we covered this in great length, um, I opined on it for quite a bit <laughs> in the last episode, you know, and talking about how our researchers are stuck in these old paradigms, really, um, as a consequence of funding and oversight mechanism that incentivizes quantity over quality. That's got to change or people can't be free 
to go ahead and jump off the cliff and and into these better technologies. And so you're making your way through there, obviously with the areas of study where this has tremendous value, the most value where people just can't turn away from it, right? You know, so let me ask you that. For all of the neuroscientists, behavioral neuroscientists listening to this today, what would you like them to know about your systems and, and how they can improve their science and the goals they have for their science? I see ourselves as enablers. So basically, you read the review articles that are out there, read how they can apply this to their science, and then we see it as a conversation. Like, talk to us and let us discuss how we can help them in their science. It's not just we talk to you, you buy our products, and, and that's it. We'd like to be there all the way. We'd like partnerships. We provide technology, you provide the ideas, and together we get a result. Why? Why does it mean so much to you? Yeah, what's in it for me? There's two things to it. Obviously, you know, biomedical science is really the pinnacle of science. Not every country can afford to do this. So we're doing this for all humankind. Obviously, it's a company uh, and it creates economic activity. It's also a personal thing. You know, I lost one of my children to cancer. And at that point, you know, this is now almost seven years ago, treatments were available, very experimental treatments. And in her case, it was a little bit too late. Now it's very common. So anything we can do to speed up the process of treatment and medical progress, I'm very passionate. It's personal to me. It's really personal to me. It's personal to me to not have other people go through this process and losing loved ones. And we can do that. And we use animal models for this. And we can learn so much from them. Yeah, especially if we do it right. And I'm very sorry to hear about the loss of your daughter. I didn't know that. But thank you for sharing something so deeply personal. Um, on that note... Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners in general? Not necessarily science people, but just in general. I guess one of the things that permeates through this whole interview is, you know, better life, better data. Uh, always put yourself in the other animal's position. Uh, so compassion, innovation, never stop thinking and just forge ahead. Follow your ideas, follow your passion. That's what I'm trying to do. And I hope everybody can do. And that's the raw truth from Dr. Harry Knott with TSC Systems. Thank you again for your time and your expertise. Very, very clever technologies. I'm really looking forward to seeing how things develop and the improvements they make on science and medical advances in the world. We appreciate you so much. Listen, research animals are still necessary for biomedical progress. This is a hard fact. It's also a fact that many of them are suffering and dying in studies that lead us either nowhere or in the wrong direction. We must do better. Their welfare is directly tied to ours. It's really that simple. And it's time, as Dr. Knott said, that we leave our old paradigms behind us and hop over to the new world. Now, part of that new world includes technologies that allow us to test new drugs and chemicals without animals. So why use animals at all? We'll explore this together on the next episode of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real, and I hope our discussion today has inspired you to think more deeply about how you would like to see things change as we shape our medical future together. Please visit our episode response page for more details about what we discussed today and send me your feedback. You'll find the link in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. And listen, I'm serious about needing your support for Get Real. If you believe in our ultimate mission to bring everyone together for stronger science and faster cures with fewer animals, then I need your help. 
please share our episodes with others and please visit our support link to make a small monthly donation to help us keep rolling. Your commitment to me will help me keep my commitment to you. We'll talk soon.